Welcome to the Neurodiverse Love Podcast. I'm Mona, and I was in a 32-year relationship. We were married for 30 years, and we didn't find out we were a neurodiverse couple until our 29th year of marriage. And we have an amazing 25-year-old daughter, and she is thriving and doing fantastic. And tonight, I have a special guest, and Manisa is not going to be with us today, but she'll be back soon. I have a special guest who's written two um, amazing books, one of which I have read from cover to cover, and that is Living Well on the Spectrum, How to Use Your Strengths to Meet the Challenges of Asperger's Syndrome slash High-Functioning Autism. Her other book is called Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Adults with Autism Spectrum Disorder. And I'd like to welcome to the Neurodiverse Love Podcast, Dr. Valerie Gals. Valerie, thank you so much for being here tonight. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I was so happy to be included in this fantastic, positive podcast that you are running. Awesome, awesome. Well, Valerie and I have had a chance to talk prior to the podcast and really kind of begin to get to know each other. And I have to tell our listeners that when I read the Living Well on the Spectrum book, I started recommending it to all the folks who were coming to the support group because it really breaks down the basics and a lot of detail regarding how a neurodiverse couple can function more effectively and go from struggling to thriving by understanding each other. And it was so easy to understand that I've highly recommended it. So I would like to know, I know you've been doing this work for over 25 years, and I know you work with the autistic adults, um, many of whom are, are in relationships, some are married, and I'd like to know kind of how you got started working with autistic adults. Oh, that's a, that's a great question, and it's a long story, but I'm going to try to keep it short. It's not something that I, uh, that I planned to do when I first became interested in becoming a psychologist. Um, I knew very little about autism when I was first, you know, beginning my PhD program in clinical psych. And, you know, my, my, my initial training that I went through in a doctoral clinical psych program was really a general clinical psych program that was geared toward, you know, teaching us about all kinds of uh, different problems in living that people can have, kind of mainstream mental health sure. background. And my program was also very research oriented. So even though it was a clinical program, we were learning a lot about how to conduct and also consume research. Mm -hmm. So, um, but, but again, it was like a general clinical psych program. I barely knew anything about autism, wasn't exposed to much about autism during those years. I did my internship at a VA hospital. So once again, nothing <laughs> no. about autism. Right. But I was all along always interested in working with adults. Um, at, at no point did I ever have any interest in working with kids because okay. I was always more, more interested in adult psychopathology, adult mental health problems. In the VA, I became even more interested, you know, working with veterans. And um, uh, what what happened was I, I did have a cognitive behavioral background. I forgot to mention that. Okay. Uh, 
a lot of behavioral and cognitive behavioral approaches is what uh, my training was really focused on. So I came into my early career with a strong background in cognitive behavioral therapy training, behavior therapy training with adults, but once again, nothing to do with autism or any kind of developmental disabilities. Mm -hmm. um, but my first job out of grad school, I was forced to take because I couldn't find the kind of job I really wanted. Mm -hmm. I was hired to work in group homes for developmentally disabled adults. And I had no interest in it at all. I'm going to be <laughs> no interest in it at all. I took the job because I, I needed a job. I had to pay bills. Sure. Um, and I did have a behavioral background. So that's really what um, allowed that agency to hire me because they wanted me to come in and assess behavior problems that their adult residents were experiencing, write behavior intervention plans, train staff on how to intervene with people when they're acting out and all this kind of stuff. So the clients that I worked with back then, you know, they had you know, severe, moderate, mild um, intellectual disability. You know, back then they called it mental retardation. Um, and, and I did, through that work, meet a few autistic people. But those people were not functioning very independently. You know, they were living in group homes. Sure. And, um, and so that was my first exposure. I, uh, when, I, when I went to work for that agency, I told myself, well, I'm just going to work here for a year, uh, <laughs> you know, just to make some money and get, get some footing so I can really look for the kind of job I really want. Sure. And I worked there for 13 years. Uh-huh. <laughs> because what ended up really hooking me in at first was I realized that a lot of the people I was meeting and trying to help, that their quote-unquote behavior problems were actually being caused by comorbid, coexisting mental health problems that had not been properly diagnosed or treated. So, so interesting. That is so interesting. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, so that like that that was intriguing to me. It's like, how come the staff don't realize that this person is depressed? Hmm. Or how come the staff don't realize that this person probably meets criteria for bipolar disorder? It, it, and it is in, and she isn't being treated for it. Hmm. So, you know, I ended up, you know, collaborating with um the program nurse and a couple of the administrators and we all put our heads together and said this is a real gap in service delivery that we have to address mm -hmm. not you know every time a person doesn't want to get out of bed it's not because they're acting out or that they have a quote-unquote behavior problem it might be because they're depressed sure. back then and this was still in like the early to mid 90s it wasn't recognized that people with developmental disabilities could also have the same mental health problems that any other adult could have. So if I can develop an anxiety disorder or I can become clinically depressed, uh, then why, why can't he or she? Just, right. be, just because you have intellectual disability, it doesn't mean you don't still suffer from some of these things that any adult could, you know, struggle with. Absolutely. So, so it was really interesting and I really enjoyed working on projects around that and changing, you know, procedures and policy in that, in that agency and working with really terrific colleagues who were into doing that too. And it was a lot of, a lot of fun. And we really, we really made um, 
a lot of difference for a lot of these clients that were living in these homes. Mm -hmm. And, but along the way, I started working in one of the outpatient clinics that they, that that agency was opening up at the time. And I started doing actual real therapy with some clients. Okay. Um, at that point, I was just doing these behavioral intervention plans and staff training. But when I started doing therapy with clients, I got to, you know, pull from my training that I had, the training I got when I was working with typical adults and veterans. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. you know, CBT for depression, CBT for anxiety disorders. And I started applying some of that with people, um, you know, who had depression and anxiety, who happened to have developmental disabilities too. But still, I found I could do these same strategies with these clients. And I thought they deserved to have Absolutely. access to state-of-the-art uh, treatment just like any other adult in the community should have access to that. So I enjoyed doing that. And that is where I finally met my very first person with Asperger syndrome. Mm. When I was doing this therapy, I got a call one day from someone who said, you know, I have, I have a 55 year old brother who I think has Asperger syndrome. And I remember when I heard this person say that I had never heard the term before. I was wow. like, Asperger. <laughs> I never visualized the word ass and the word burger. I really didn't know what yeah. I was talking about. Right. I did promptly look it up and found out, oh, this is a thing. Uh -huh. yeah. And, and I, I ended up meeting that man, that 55-year-old man, who, um, and, and he was like a genius. Mm. You know, he, he, he had like a master's degree from an Ivy League, you know, school, like a super smart guy, um, but had struggled with a number of things through the years. And I won't get into his story, but it, it turned out, yeah, he indeed did meet criteria for Asperger's and he was getting diagnosed at the age of 55. Wow. I'm really intrigued with this whole idea that people with autism could function at such different levels. Like I had never met somebody before who, had a master's degree and also had autism. Mm -hmm. I was like, well, this is interesting. And I just became more and more um, uh, interested in learning more about this. And then word got around that I was, you know, meeting with people who had these types of issues. So I just started getting more and more referrals with, uh, you know, from people who wanted me to evaluate adults adults who were thought to possibly have this. And since now at this point, it's mid to late nineties, that was when the DSM four had just come out. Right. And with it, Asperger's. With right. the Asperger's thing. Right. So that, so then that became a real focus of my work for quite a few years. I was just meeting more and more clients who kind of came with that constellation of symptoms where they were very bright, very, in many ways, successful, independent in a lot of ways, and just needing help with the stress of daily living. Right. And, um, and, and once again, just like a few years earlier, I realized CBT not only is appropriate for the problems they're coming in with, but it's really very, a good match. Sure. CBT is a good match for people whose brains work in a particular way and kind of a structured structured intervention is going to go over well with someone who likes structure right. and CBT 
he is very structured. Right. So that was a very long-winded answer to your question. That was how I got into it. Well, Valerie, it's so fascinating because we're about the same age. I just turned 58, and I don't want to give away your age. but um, Exactly the same age, Mona. (laughs) There you go. So, you know, I was getting my bachelor's and master's in the 80s. So there was no such thing as Asperger's, and there was no such thing as autism spectrum disorder. And like you said, it didn't come into the DSM until the mid-90s. And so everybody you know, that I went to school with, if you talked about pervasive developmental disorder, you talked about some other issue, they oftentimes thought about a child and not necessarily an adult. So it sounds like, you know, you went around this in a very circuitous way, but thank goodness that you heard about this 55-year-old man and you were able to work with him and the doors opened up because I know you have helped so many people and you're just your books are phenomenal so I really really want to get in depth into what it is you do especially I want to start with the communication issues because here you're talking about people who are autistic some of whom might be considered genius Mensa are excelling in their career but have had multiple relationships that have failed or can't seem to maintain a relationship for more than one or two dates. So can you talk a little bit about your work with men or women or men and women who are struggling in that dynamic? They're doing well in that that area that requires a lot of rational thinking, but they're challenged in more of the social um, aspect of life. Well, that, yeah, that's a good question. And of course, each, each person who comes to me comes with different circumstances. So it's my, my approach is very individualized. So, you know, anytime someone comes in, the first thing they're going to talk about is what they're struggling with. And then I'm going to learn about, um, a bit about their history. Um, and you know, of course, in, in cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, it's different from, let's say, psychodynamic therapy. And we don't, we don't get too far into the past and childhood conflicts and all that stuff. But we do like to know about people's learning history, like what experiences has this person have that might have shaped the way they are, you know, interacting with their world. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the things that I will do with a new client are the same things I would do with any new client, whether they are identify on spectrum or not. Like any adult client coming in, this is what you're doing. You want to learn about their, 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 their primary complaints, what they're not satisfied with in life, as well as their history and how, you know, what, what kind of led up to the current circumstances. Sure. And so that's what I'm going to be doing for the first few sessions. And then once I have kind of a formulation or conceptualization of what has led this person up to this point, um, then that person and I will collaborate on making a plan, a plan for, you know, um, addressing each of their goals. So whatever their complaints are, they're, you know, presenting problems, that gets kind of turned around into a goal. So, you know, if a person says, I want to be able to 
manage my communication with my boss more effectively, mm-hmm. that, you know, that's, that would be a goal. But maybe that grew out of the come in and the complaint is, I'm so stressed out at work and I think I'm going to get fired. You know, we turn that into, okay, a goal is learning how to practice more effective communication with the boss. Mm-hmm. And um, so sometimes the relationship issues are not necessarily at home, but with people outside the home, like in that example. Yeah. Um, if it is inside the home, um, it, 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 there's any number of people that person could be living with that they're having problems with. Sometimes it's a spouse or a partner. Sometimes it's not, you know, right. A a brand new client I got recently, you know, he came in because he wants to get better at communicating with his son, Mm -hmm. you know, and I've had other people come in who they want to improve how they're getting along with uh, parents. If they're still living with their parents, sometimes, sometimes people are, Um, so so let's just let's just take this let's just take a 35 year old man okay um he is in a new marriage or a new relationship they have one child let's say and he comes in and he says to you my wife or my partner screams at me nonstop every day i can't do anything right is that ever a, a complaint that you hear from um, a man or a woman who is autistic and in a relationship and they've just had a child? Yes, that has been at least, you know, at least similar to what you're describing. Yeah. Okay. Because one of the things that I hear from a lot of, and it's mostly women in my, uh, my neurodiverse love peer support group, is that things begin to change almost overnight when they have a child. Mm. And um, I'd love to hear if you have some strategies that you use, because this is a really tough thing to deal with. You know, um, the sensory issues, the additional responsibility, maybe if their um, wife or partner was their special interest and they had a routine, of course, everything changes when the baby comes. So is there anything that you have um, counseled your clients on related to that? Because it seems to be a big issue for a lot of the folks I'm working with. Well, I mean, I would say, you know, the times when that has been an issue I can't say that each case had the same factors. Sure. Sure, So the presenting problem might look the same, but then the factors that are involved in each of the cases aren't the same. So, so the strategies would be based on what factors are contributing to that particular constellation of issues. So, you know, like I can think of one case where, you know, the marriage really was troubled, you know, long before they had the child. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it was a case where, you know, both partners started to say that they thought maybe it had been a mistake to have a child because they already were in trouble mm-hmm. for that. So okay. I've certainly, you know, that would be one. But again, you know, because I'm not working with the couple. Right. Um, usually what I have to find out from the individual client is, first of all, are you in couples therapy? 
because if somebody is not already working with a couples therapist, if it's as bad as what you just described, that would be one of my first questions. Like, are you working with a couples therapist? Absolutely. Yeah. A therapist that has specialization in autism spectrum differences or disorder. Yeah. That's critical. Yeah. And it doesn't even have to be as long as it's a good, what I, this is my bias now, a good behavior, (laughs) a good good behavioral marital therapist will know what to do. Okay. Because, because what I have found um, through the years is that, you know, I should back up a little bit and say when I was getting my uh, mainstream mental health training way back at Stony Brook, my doctoral training, I spent a whole year working in um, a marital therapy clinic, Okay, which was on the campus there because one of the primary, um, actually one of the leading researchers in the country on marital discord and marital therapy was at Stony Brook. So... His research lab, which was also a clinic that served the community, was on the campus. So I spent a whole year learning all about marital discord. Is that Dr. Gottman? Is that Dr. Gottman? uh, No, Dr. O'Leary. Okay. Daniel O'Leary. But yes, Gottman is like one of his contemporaries. Okay. Um, And... Of course, we read Gottman's book, and you know it was it was actually an interesting year because I learned a lot about what makes couples um, thrive, and also what are the key factors that exist when there's discord in a marriage, mm. and disharmony, and and conflict. And back then, it had nothing to do with autism that I was learning this. It was just like for human beings, you know, right, right, right. Couples. Here's all the many things that go wrong. Right. Why, you know, still to this day, about approximately half of marriages end in divorce. Right. And, you know, the majority of those, it's by the eighth year of marriage. And so that's not even an autism issue. So you so-called neurotypical people are not having such an easy time with this thing we call marriage. Right. Right. That's true. Great point. Great point. It's not easy for anybody. Yeah. So I, in a way, I'm glad I had that training and that I learned all about neurotypical failing marriages because, yeah. because what, I, what I have found in my work with people who are on the spectrum is that a lot of the things that you have to do to help a couple that's yeah. having discord in their marriage, it's really the same. <laughs> Let's talk about that. What what do you think are some of the things that if if you were talking to the um, neurotypical partner in a relationship that is neurodiverse, what are maybe the top two to five things that you would say to them for them to do, for them to think about, to maybe heal and grow and communicate better in the marriage. What, what, what would be your advice or thoughts? Well, it would be, again, it would probably be the same um, uh, because it's very general and you'll see what I mean. Okay. Generally speaking, a couple is not going to make it if they don't have some method of communicating with one another. Amen. If there isn't some way to communicate with one another, they're doomed. Mm-hmm. And that's a human thing. 
Yeah. That's not like an autism thing. Right. And, and any couple, whether autism is present or not, any couple that is struggling with that for whatever reason has to work on that. And behavioral marital therapy is designed to help couples with that, to help two people who aren't getting their messages across to one another get better at it even if it involves developing some third language like you speak your language i speak mine we got to come up with a third one that we both can learn so that we can get our messages across to one another i think that is so critical and i love the way you said it because we've talked about perspectives in the pot or on the podcast and you know one partner thinks their perspective is right and the other partner thinks their perspective is right and they aren't listening to each other they don't understand each other and they're treating each other with disrespect and they're getting in fights and so instead if i'm hearing you right you know instead of communicating that way from a place of resentment and anger yes you both have your own individual ways of communicating you know going to the right therapist or coach or whatever might help you create a third language. Exactly. But, but you have to want to, right? You have oh, to yeah. want to, right? You have to and, want to. Right. And I think you that's... You have to both want to. Because one right. thing I remember from this marital therapy research clinic I worked in is one, one really robust finding that they got out of one of their research projects was that you know, they would, when couples would come in, you know, to participate in these research projects that they were doing there. Yeah. Um, you know, the couples, each, each member of the couple would be asked to fill out like this monstrous packet of questionnaires. Okay. Like a million questions in these questionnaires. Sure. Because usually there was more than one project in that packet. Like so-and-so's dissertation, somebody else's right. project. You know, right. and... um. But with all the millions of questions that were on the questionnaire, they would do like correlational analyses to see which, um, in this one longitudinal study they did, which questions loaded most, most uh, statistically with long-term outcomes, positive outcomes, mm -hmm. like longevity of the marriage, how long they stood together, satisfaction measures later on, a few years later. And the one question that was most robust was one that you wouldn't necessarily pay much attention to, which was how committed are you to making things work with your partner? Wow. And you would rate that from zero to a hundred. And out of all the other things they were rating, that was the question that loaded most heavily correlationally with, um, you know, outcome later on, a few years later in this longitudinal study. Makes Even sense. though there were probably hundreds of questions in that packet, that question statistically predicted long-term outcome. But it makes sense, Valerie, because, I mean, I will tell you in my marriage, I mean, we were together for 32 years. We were married for 30. Um, I was reading every book I could get my hands on. I was... <laughs> going to lectures, I was seeing a therapist, I was doing all that stuff. And this was before we knew we were a neurodiverse couple, trying to figure out what I could do and what we could do together in the marriage. And the reason our marriage ended is because I was still willing to do the work and my ex wasn't. So yeah. I, I'm 100% with you on that. Yeah. So, 
So the having a method of communication is critical. I mean, whatever it is, whether it's, you know, texting mostly or, you know, uh, 15 minutes a day, you know, sitting down and, and bonding with each other, whatever it is, whether it's, you know, physical connection or communication, what was the, what are the other things that, that you would like to share with our audience are critical in a healthy relationship? Well, yeah, that, I guess the, the commitment and the communication are the two key features or the okay. key factors that are associated with long-term success. And yes, you're right. It has to be both people. Right. If only one is rating high on commitment, then, you know, that's not going to bode as well. Right. Um, but if you're highly committed you're willing to do uncomfortable things mm. and to learn a new language with a therapist both people have to do uncomfortable things both people have to do things differently than what they're used to right and if both people aren't willing to do that then it's not going to work like it can't just be about one person doing all the changing right and i think sometimes what can happen with the neurodiverse um, community is sometimes there can be this expectation that the one, the one who has autism is the one that's got to do more of the changing. Mm -hmm. That really doesn't fit with what marital research for the general human population tells us. Right, 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 right. And, and I think, you know, change is hard for anyone. Yeah. And, and I know I can only speak in my relationship. I know change was much more difficult for my ex than it was for me. I could change, you know, quickly within, you know, minutes. Yeah. And, and so um, even though both partners might be willing to change, the change for the neurodivergent partner may come a lot slower. And so that's going to require a lot of patience on the part of the neurotypical partner. I mean, it depends. It depends. I think with maybe with some behaviors that might be true, okay. but, cha but changing your perspective, mm. that's a whole different thing. And sometimes that is like, you've got to let go of an idea of the way you think it should be. And even, even the neurotypical person might have trouble with that. Like who likes to give up their ideas of the way they think should, things should be? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of the neurotypicals that I work with, you know, they came into the marriage thinking that their spouse or, yeah, their spouse was going to be a particular way. Yeah. And when that doesn't happen, they get disappointed and there isn't a clear, good, healthy way of communication. So things start to deteriorate. Right. 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 So, so yeah. And, th and that's a big, big, big challenge. So do you, I, I hear you saying that CBT um, can be a great way for both partners to learn to change their thinking and their communication. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. And I think behaviorally trained marital therapists, that's how they approach every couple. It's like, here's two people who are not like one another, who come from different backgrounds, have different styles, have different languages, maybe come from different cultures. Mm -hmm. And no matter, no matter how you slice it, these two people have to find a way to get messages across to one another. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, and then, and so the, the behavioral marital therapist can really help each person change the way they are communicating with the other person just to ensure that messages are getting across. And think, uh, yeah, go ahead. go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. Go ahead. You're on a roll. So, so yeah, that is the challenge that every marital therapist faces with every couple. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think when, when, when autism is present, that's another thing that one of the people in the couple might be challenged by, but then the partner probably has a different thing that's right. in his or her way. Right. You know, everybody comes with a thing. Yeah. <laughs> and, and one thing I've noticed in just in the, you know, clients that I've had that, um, you know, that have been having trouble in their marriage, it's not like the partner is without some kind of neurodiversity of his or her own. Yeah. I haven't met anyone actually who's married to someone who doesn't have some other thing. It doesn't, yeah. sometimes it is autism also. I've had couples where they both are autistic. Absolutely. And it could be ADHD. That's common. I find a lot of clients of mine who are on the spectrum are married to people with ADHD. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Isn't it interesting? <laughs> yes. I, I, yeah, so the so the so the partner is not without some neurodiversity, him or herself. Right, right, but it may not be diagnosed, or they may yeah. not want to admit it, or whatever. Yeah, I do think um, sometimes when I think about how quickly I moved and how I lost interest in jobs and projects, um, I, I do wonder if I have had all my life ADD or ADHD. I do, I do wonder it, and. And I, I'm not sure that it's the greatest match with somebody who is autistic, you know. <laughs> because I, I, I think in some ways it is, though. You know, in Tell this, me more. Tell me more. I think the reason, the reason I've noticed this, probably, why, you know, why is there a disproportionate number of people I'm seeing that seem to be, you know, hooking up with people <laughs> in that pattern it's probably because at first you're drawn to one another because you are very different from each other. Yes. Like the person yes. with ADD is going to be more likely to be flitting all about and, um, you know, you're moving around all the time and make, moving toward making things happen. Let's go, let's go. Let's actually, my husband has ADHD. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you know, yeah. Um, you know, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. You know, where, where's the person who, who's autistic might be more methodical and you know slow moving so it's like the tortoise and the hare being married to each other right that can work that can be useful it can be useful to have somebody as a partner who does things differently than you yes i agree i agree and i think you know i i can only speak for my marriage i think that's one of the reasons that we stayed married as long as we did besides the fact that our sex life was great i always say that um but <laughs> But um, that helps a lot. <laughs> yeah, it does help a lot. But you know, I think when um, things, you know, we only had one child, and I remember my ex saying, "If we have another child, we will definitely end our marriage in divorce." And I knew he was right. Yeah. I may not have known why he thought that, 
yeah looking through a neurodiverse lens I know exactly why he thought that it would have been too overwhelming for both of us yeah and and I'm glad we didn't have a second child and we have one amazing child who's thriving but I did do all the things quickly that needed to get done like taking care of the field trips and the class projects and all that stuff and play dates and all that stuff that he didn't want to have anything to do with because they happened quickly he would have had to manage a lot of other kids and he could handle our daughter amazingly but bring in a lot of other people bring in a lot of change into the mix not his thing or at least it wasn't you know when we were together so we worked for a long time together and I think one of the areas where we were the best is co-parenting ah isn't that interesting yeah (laughs) <laughs> yeah, because yeah. You, you come with different skill sets. Yeah. And, and I think this is also something that you see universally in marriages is that people tend to um, connect with people who have a different skill set because it's actually adaptive. Like yeah. if you have that skill set and I have this skill set and we work together, we can get a lot more done than yeah. either one of us could get done alone. Absolutely. So, you know, Valerie, I think another big challenge I hear a lot of the couples have is that rational thinking of the autistic person in the relationship and the more emotional thinking and more feeling way of communicating for the non-autistic or the neurotypical person. Um, Is there anything that you can share with our listeners about how to maybe communicate more effectively when that's what's going on like you know when the autistic person is very blunt and very black and white in their comments and their thinking or their tone of voice is very blunt but now I know my ex didn't mean to hurt me with his bluntness or his more rational way of communicating that was just how his brain was wired that's what felt comfortable for him I wanted him to communicate like I did and I I know these non-autistic or neurotypical women for the most part want the same thing. So any thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I think what, what can be useful for, for um, everyone. This is one of my favorite things about DBT. Are you familiar with DBT? Yeah, I'm not as familiar with it, but it's uh, yeah. called dialectical behavior therapy. Right. DBT. It's like a form of, it's like a variant of it. And it was designed originally to help people who have borderline personality disorder. But, but you know, that's what it, even though that's what it was first designed for, it's really useful for a whole lot of different problems where strong, um, intense emotion, emotion regulation problems. And um, one of the, there, there's a whole lot of like exercises and worksheets and um, homework that comes with, with DBT. And even though I'm not trained as a DBT therapist, I sometimes use some of the tools that come out of the workbooks. And there's one concept that comes out of there that's called wise mind. Have you ever heard of that wise mind? No, No, please share. Wise mind is, it's about, uh, it teaches people how to utilize a combination of their emotions and their rational mind to make decisions mm, and to and to you know act accordingly in situations and you know that 
the, the wisdom behind the wise mind is that to make your best decisions, you're always using both. It's not like rational's better than emotion or emotion's better than rational. The, right. the wisest decisions you'll make is when you're finding a sweet spot between both. Mm-hmm. They overlap. Yep, I agree. So if you've got a couple where one rational and the other one leads more toward emotion, if they can together learn both of them to use wise mind, then they're going to find more common ground. I love it. Love it. And, and can you recommend a, a book? Is there a, a particular DVD book, book that has, like, I love your book because there's all the worksheets and you've made every single piece of this so simple. It is a big book. It's a, it's a thick book, but there's a lot of worksheets and, and people could work together as a couple um, or an individual who's autistic could use it. And it's just very, very user-friendly. Is there any particular book? And, and you don't have to tell me, you can also email me. I could put it in the show notes. Is there anybody you can think of or a book you can think of? I don't have one off the top of my head because the books, okay. the books that I've used, they're more like the manuals that the therapist would use. Gotcha. gotcha. Um, like okay. self-help, I'm sure there are a lot. Like, okay. Um, of self-help books that are kind of based on the principles of DBT. Okay. Okay. But um, you know, I, I have I have referred um, autistic clients of mine to DBT when I thought they needed that really specialized training because I, you know, like I said, I borrow some of the concepts and worksheets, but I'm not a DBT therapist and I don't work on a DBT team. But I think there's a lot of usefulness to it for people, pe- people who have emo- problems with emotion regulation, which that can be people on the spectrum and neurotypical people can be having trouble regulating emotion. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I was a screamer. I was a crier. I did it all. And I know I, that was not an effective way to communicate. You know, I've, I've done the work. Um, and I'm no longer, that's not how I communicate anymore in a relationship, but I will tell you, I probably most of our marriage, I did that. And I, I should have, um, gone to somebody that could have helped me with that. I was very, very, very emotional and, um, it wasn't good for any of us, any of us, even, even my daughter. But, um, so yeah, so I think, I think that's really helpful. The DBT piece. I also hear um, from a lot of the couples about executive function. They may use that word. They may not. Yeah. And, you know, the idea that, you know, maybe an engineer um, who is, you know, top in their field or really doing well at work can plan and organize and run amazing meetings and projects and then comes home and can't manage to take out the garbage every Tuesday night or forgets to pick up the kids at school or, or whatever. So are there any strategies that you might suggest to help some of the couples that are dealing with that type of challenge? Well, I can answer the question as like couples and then answer it for how I would help an individual with that. Who's telling me that she is having that problem. I mean, couples wise, I think it goes back to the behavioral marital therapist to help um, with 
you know, uh, helped help the couple negotiate um, division of of responsibilities because that's actually a common thing that comes up in marital therapy is there's not a fair division of responsibilities, right? Um, and then things have to sort of be redeployed, right? Um, and negotiated. But if an individual um, client was telling me that he or she was having trouble with that, then I would probably help that person develop some um, strategies for either compensating for what their brain just can't do by itself. Because the thing, the, just the thing with executive function problems is it's very hard for people to wrap their head around that because when a person is really smart, yeah, but then they struggle with this one thing. It's very hard. That person usually feels ashamed of it because mm -hmm. they're, they're kind of thinking, what's wrong with me? Like, why can't I remember to right. do this? You know, right. and these are the things that I hear from people. So, you know, it, part of the work I will do is, first of all, to address that shame because that shame is certainly not going to help them. Um, but, you know, just to be able to accept your brain doesn't do that. It can't. So you, you need adaptive technology or adaptive equipment right. to, to address that. And like, I'll give an example. There was a client I was working with recently who um, was having difficulty remembering to turn off a space heater whenever leaving a particular room. Okay. And this person was trying over and over and over again. But he said, when something else grabs my attention, like I have to run into the kitchen or something, uh, it just goes completely out of my mind. I can't remember it. Right. And he was really upset about this mm -hmm. because he kept making that mistake over and over again. I've got to find a way to remember to turn that thing off if I'm going to be leaving the room. Okay. He was almost mortified that his brain couldn't do this. Wow. And, you know, I feel bad for him. Sure. And um, I, the first thing I had to tackle was the shame. Mm -hmm. then, you know, once dealing with the shame, it's like, without shame, you need to set up equipment in a way that's like dummy proof. Mm -hmm. so your space heater, if it doesn't have a timer on it, you need to put a timer on it mm -hmm. so that no matter whether you're in the room or not, it's going to shut off every 10 minutes. And he was like, yeah, but I, I, I don't know why I can't just remember. It's like, get past that. You can't, your brain can't, you can't do it. It's okay. Get a timer. <laughs> I love that Valerie. And, and that I think is an issue for a lot of couples. You know, you know, if, if I'm always screaming at my spouse or partner for something that he is not doing, I'm sure, or I did this, I'm sure that the shame increased over time. No matter what I do, it's not good enough. I hear that all the time. Yeah. The autistic partners or yeah. the neurotypical partners say their autistic partners say that. And I heard it over and over again from my ex. I think dealing with the shame and the inadequacy or the feelings of inadequacy are probably very critical before you're willing to try something new because maybe you're afraid of failing again. And 
Or you have a spouse that's saying to you, well, I don't see why you need a timer. Why can't you just remember it? Yes, I did that. (laughs) I did that. Guilty, guilty. Yeah, that was before I knew that our brains were wired differently. So that's why, you know, compassion and grace and kindness are so important in any relationship. But maybe you have to bring it up a little bit in a neurodiverse relationship. Yeah, I agree with you. So I, I love that. And, and it goes back to how committed are you to the change, both individually and in the relationship? Those are going to be the critical questions to ask yes. Yes. as you move forward. I, I right. hear you. I think, I think there's another thing that a lot of people talk about um, in the groups, and that is special interests or deep interests and how sometimes those can become so consuming that they find that they're fighting for time with their partner. And I remember feeling like I was my ex's computers, like competition, you know, he'd be in front of the computer creating for days, you know, he could, he could stay up till six o'clock in the morning and not sleep and not eat and, you know, barely go to the bathroom and just ignore everything and I, I actually, Valerie, this is this. Now I understand this. I used to have dreams that he had a mistress. And then as soon as I had those dreams, I'd get up and I'd say to him, look, I had another dream that you had a mistress. I know it's because you're spending too much time in your computer room. Yeah. So, I mean, it was, I understood why I was having the dreams. That's one of the strengths I have to say about um, my marriage my ex was extremely loyal. I never, ever, ever doubted that he would um, not cheat. So, but, but he definitely was using his computer way too much um, to create and to do what his special interests were. And I mean, I understood it, but it took away from our marriage. So thoughts, any thoughts on that, you know, um, for somebody who wants to be in a relationship? Well, I mean, one thing that, you know, probably we all we all are subject to this. You know, before before we marry someone, we might notice something about them, but we just think, oh, that'll change after a marriage, <laughs> or right. I'll, I'll be able to get I'll be able to get that person to change, or or we say, I don't really like that, but maybe I'll get used to it. I it won't bother me. Right. So, is something like special interest? That's definitely something that is observable if you spend enough time with that person before you marry them now of course if you don't live with somebody first then you might not see it but um i think what can happen is the time spent on the um on the special interest can increase over time Mm -hmm. if that person is finding stress relief in that activity absolutely so i can't you know I think the special interests are going to be pretty visible before marriage, but maybe the amount of time the person spends can change if that person is really relying on it as stress relief. And then if there is a lot of discord or disharmony in the marriage, well, that's causing stress. So, you know, gee, let me go to a place where I feel I have competency. Mm hmm. Because in my relationship, I don't feel competent yep. to spend my free time doing things where I feel some 
some competency or some mastery over something. Yeah, totally makes sense. And so, you know, by fighting your partner about not spending enough time with you, you just make them want to spend more time doing their special interests where they can feel relaxed, competent, have fun, whatever. So that's probably where, again, a third party would be helpful to help either set up a schedule or communication regarding what's going on and how they can communicate more effectively and reduce some of the stress in the household. Yes. Yeah. And you do need a third party because, you know, after you've been, you know, your feelings are being hurt all the time. If you're the, the partner that's not doing the special interest, right. after years of this, you're so angry. Like, it can't be on you to figure out how to talk nice, you know, right. you need, right. you need help too, you know? And, and, and again, at that point, I think both partners need just as much help and both partners are going to have to change just as much. Yeah. And that, that's kind of hard to face that because you're exhausted by then. Right. No, I agree with you. You know, I, I told my daughter that she's been in a, a relationship for a little over two years. And I said, you know, one of the things I wish that was like mandatory is before you move in together um, or get married and move in together, that you go for couples counseling. And <laughs> I know in some churches or some religions that's like required. Yeah. I wish, I wish we had done that and learned, you know, about good communication methods because all you know is what you know from your family of origin that's right or, right so and usually it's not too healthy <laughs> so. right. or, or even just your culture like if you like i that i'm married to some, um, a man who's from another culture mm. so that could be that could be a barrier too absolutely and absolutely. I think about autism i've said this to some of my clients like being autistic in and of itself, it's not a disorder, it's not a disease, there's not something wrong with you, but you are from a culture that's different from the, per the person you're with. It's like a cultural factor almost. <laughs> I agree, and I don't think I've heard anybody say it that way, but I so agree. What I have heard people say is that um, sometimes an autistic individual may feel more comfortable with somebody from another culture because there aren't all these expectations that they might have being with somebody from their same culture. And yeah, I would and agree. I, yeah. You do? Okay. Okay. Yeah. So it's so, it's so, it's so interesting to me. All of this is so interesting. And again, I can't go back in time, but what, every guest does is provide information for people who are currently in neurodiverse relationships and are struggling. And then also if they want to go and get assistance, so many folks are doing coaching because they don't have um, licenses in, in all the States. So yeah. they're able to do coaching, but they're also a licensed therapist. So I want to ask you, cause we're almost at the end of our episode. I want to ask you, what other issues or challenges do you think, and maybe there's just one, do you think has stood out in your years of practice with autistic individuals, men and women, and um, folks who maybe identify as non-binary? What do you think is like the best advice 
something we haven't talked about that you could give to folks who want their relationships to thrive and they want to thrive in their relationships. Is there any, anything, any words of wisdom that you'd like to share that we haven't already talked about? Uh, it it's probably is what we already talked about, but I think the, that the, the advice I would give is that if you are both committed, you can get through this by learning a new way of communicating with each other. And, you know, there's always hope as long as both of you are both, you know, both willing to do that. If you are both willing to go outside your comfort zone, you, you can improve this. And I would also say that your troubles are not as unique as you might think. <laughs> yeah. I'm saying that from this, all this experience I had with neurotypical couples who were going down in a burning plane, you know? Right, right, right. <laughs> I, I, I learned what that looks like when autism is not involved. Right, right. And I think when autism is involved, it's not really the, a, a plane going down, a burning plane going down. It, it's, it's, you know, the, to rescue it, it's going to be the same, whether somebody's autistic or not, or ADD, HD or not, or, you know, everybody's got a thing they bring to the table. Right. And, you know, there, there isn't any one answer. It's just more like rolling up your sleeves with a good trained therapist who's going to work with both of you, who's going to support both of you equally, and it's going to help each of you change some of your behaviors. I think it's critical. I think it's critical. And, you know, um, this is the one thing I wish that I could, I wish I had a magic wand and any, any person that is struggling in a love relationship that I could help them find the right third party um, to help them thrive as individuals and as a couple don't have that magic wand they haven't made it yet so uh, that's why I'm bringing on people like you and so many others to the neurodiverse love podcast to share what what you've seen what you've learned what you are practicing and I would love Valerie for people to know where they can reach you are you only doing therapy in New York or are you doing coaching also I do coaching when people live in other states. Okay. Fabulous. Fabulous. And are you only working with autistic individuals or do you ever work with neurodiverse couples? Well, I, I don't ever work with couples. Okay. Because I do respect that that skill set a therapist has to have to be a really good couples therapist. I don't have that. Gotcha. I haven't been trained. I did that year you know, that I mentioned that was so long ago. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't you to do that work. So I'm not practiced enough in couples therapy. It's a very unique specialized um, service that I just, I'm not expert in it, right. but there, there are uh, other people out there who are. So I think any couple who's really struggling, they need to do themselves the service of going to somebody who's really well-trained. Yes, I agree. And so if an individual is interested in coming to you for therapy in New York, the best place for them to reach you is your website? 
Is that yeah. Okay. And that's um, www.valerie, V-A-L-E-R-I-E, Gauss, G-A-U-S, or is there a period in there? No, actually, the website is www.drvaleriegauss.com. Okay. But no spaces. It's just like D-R-V-A-L-E-R-I-E-G-A-U-S. Okay. Okay. Now I've got it up. Okay. And I will put that in the show notes. And um, if anybody is interested in coaching, you are also available for that too, if they're outside the state of New York. Yeah. Okay. Fabulous. So you do, um, you know, Zoom or, or Skype or whatever. Yeah, I use I use something called DoxyMe. It's a it's a telehealth platform. Fantastic. Fantastic. Valerie, do you have any other words of wisdom that you would like to share with our listeners? This has been wonderful. I just want to say to you, Mona, that I think your website is fantastic. I think this podcast, what I really appreciate about what you're doing is at the center of it, literally and in your logo, is love. Yes. It's yes. about love. Yes. And 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 you're you're taking a very painful topic and making it into something positive and hopeful. Uh-huh. And I think this is what really helps people move forward. So thank you for what you're doing for the community. Thank you so much, Valerie. And you know, as word spreads, I have more and more people contacting me. I, I really, I'm going to put, I want you to know, you're going to be on the website. People will be able to reach you and they'll know what um, episode you were on. But I, I want to thank you for the groundbreaking work that you did. And I know in your cognitive uh, behavioral therapy for adults with autism spectrum disorder, I'm looking at the second edition that you had a forward by Tony Atwood. And, you know, Tony's kind of like the grandfather of, of autism. I mean, There is definitely a paradigm shift. It is happening. And it's about figuring out how to understand different neurotypes so that we can all go from just barely surviving to thriving as individuals and in our relationships. And that's what I'm all about. And I think you are too working with the autistic individuals that you're working with. So thank you. Thank you for all that you've done to help people over the years. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Mona. All right. It was great talking to you, Valerie. And you take care. Have a wonderful 2022. You too. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye.